You're listening to Booth One on your podcast network, your source for all that's new in the performing arts and popular culture. Gary Zabinski here, your host flying solo once again as our beloved Roscoe continues to recuperate from his medical treatment. I visited with him this week and he asked me to send greetings and salutations to all our listeners out there. He's getting somewhat squirrely with cabin fever and can't wait to get behind the microphone again. Uh, We're considering doing a remote episode next time from his rehabilitation center bedside, but uh, we'll have to wait and see if he's capable and up to it. He'll be back before you know it. Today in the booth, we have as our special guest, the founder and artistic director of one of Chicago's most engaging and challenging theater companies, The Hypocrites. Please give a warm welcome to our friend, Sean Graney. Hi, Sean. Welcome to Booth One. Hi, Gary. I'm uh, thankful to be here. Thank you. (laughs) That's fantastic that you're taking the time to be with us today. I'm very excited about this interview. I've been a big fan for many, many years. Hypocrites is uh, about 20 years old at this point, and uh, you've done some remarkable work over that period of time. Hey, let's tell our listeners a little bit about you, though. You grew up on the East Coast, is that right? That's correct. About where? I grew up about uh, 12 miles outside of Boston on the North Shore. A town called Saugus, Massachusetts. Saugus, Massachusetts. Uh-huh. And, and you went to school at Emerson. That's correct, yeah. Emerson in Boston. Did you study theater at Emerson? I did. I was an acting major. Um, well, we all were acting majors, <laughs> weren't we? <laughs> I was lucky enough to have a, a professor tell me I was a very bad actor. So I gave it up in pursuit of uh, writing mostly, and uh, I didn't study directing at all. I I had a teacher to tell me that I was a bad actor. I had one teacher that stood me up in front of the class. He put me profile, and with a pencil, he he kind of marked the, the space between the bridge of my nose and the bottom of my chin and said, now look, class, look how his nose and chin sticks out. That's not a good sign. Wow. <laughs> she was just criticizing my personality and talent rather than my looks. So yeah, I, I, think. I, I mean, how, how debilitating was that for a young actor? I, I was very thankful. I, I, I thought it was great because I think teachers should tell students, you know, you know what? This, this side of the world isn't for you. This profession maybe isn't necessarily for you. Like, and you can take that information and continue your studies as is. Or you can take that information and like maybe change career paths, you know. And when you're when you're nineteen, uh, eighteen, nineteen, you don't necessarily know what is out there in the world, you know. And I think she was just saying like uh, you're clearly passionate about theater, but acting isn't your venue. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, it definitely stung at the time, but it's one of the best pieces of career advice I've had in my whole life. Applaud her for that, (laughs) for sending you on a a path and a trajectory that you may have been better suited for and and more equipped for. What brought you to Chicago from the East Coast? Because there's plenty of theater out there, plenty of challenging theater as well. I I think I read a story uh, at, at some point that you decided... You're going to go seek out a theater community where you can establish yourself, make a difference, 
someplace that has uh, challenges for you. And I think you uh, tried Chicago, and you were going to try Seattle or something. Is this is well, this the yeah, story? Yeah, very close, very close. I uh, you know I graduated from Emerson and stuck around Boston for a year, and I self produced a show in the basement of a bar that I like wrote and directed, and all my friends were in, and it was so bad, and nobody <laughs> nobody came to it, you know. And I was like, oh well, screw you, Boston. If you don't like good theater, then you know, not knowing ever anything, I didn't even send out press releases. You know, it was just like I was. I was so dumb in how to produce this, you know, and self-producing your own work is always stupid, kind of. So I was I was mad at Boston, unfairly or fairly, and I, I looked at other theater cities, you know, and I looked at New York, and I was, I was dirt broke at the time, so I just thought I could never afford New York. So I was like, what other theater cities are there in the country? And I heard great things about Seattle, and I heard great things about Chicago. And I took a train out to uh, Chicago and visited it, expecting to go to Seattle next. And I was just like, nope, Chicago's right. I saw Too Much Light Makes a Babe Go Blind. Uh -huh. And I was mm. like, and at that point, it was already running for like two years. Neo-futurists. Yeah, which I thought was amazing, you know. And I just was knew that Chicago, in the audience, the energy of the audience, the energy of the performers, I just really felt like Chicago was the right place. So I went back to Boston, packed up my stuff, and then moved out to Chicago. Wow, that's uh, that's quite the commitment. Were you? Did you come visit in the summertime or the wintertime? It was actually the winter, believe wow. it or not. Yeah, it was this horrible train ride. I, I took a train from Boston, and it broke down in the middle of upstate New York, and there was no electricity, and we're, it was this horrible snowstorm, and we're <laughs> on this freezing train. And then I got here, and it was slushy, and like the cold, it was so cold, but I still, I still loved it. Well, you gave yeah. it the full Monty. You're like, yeah. well, I, I'm going to experience Chicago in all its, uh, in all its glory. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I bet your first summer here was just uh, spectacular. You were probably so pleased with the way the weather turns in the summertime. You created uh, this company called uh, the Hypocrites Theater Company, which I mentioned uh, right off the bat. How long did it take you after you got here to establish your own company? I was here for two years um, before I started doing theater here. I, well, I moved here thinking I was going to be a playwright, and I sort of got really drunk and stoned and like sat in my room and wrote horrible plays, you know, <laughs> while working at Starbucks during the day. And having no life experience, I expected to be able to sort of generate theatrical material, you know, based on whim. And the plays <laughs> I was writing were just terrible, horrible plays. And so I uh, decided that I wasn't a good playwright, just like I wasn't a good actor. And I quit. I was like, I'm never going to write another play. And, but I knew I loved theater. And then at that point, I didn't even consider directing. And I got a job at Chicago Shakespeare, which was then Shakespeare rep, as house manager for a season. And uh, I met these amazing Chicago actors, yeah. you know, like Scott Parkinson, Larry Endo, and... They sort of taught me about Chicago theater. In that year I was there, we would hang out in the lobby and we would smoke and gossip when they had some downtime off stage. And it was just this amazing year I had where I got a really great tutorial on Chicago theater. Like, go see this theater. Go talk to my friend here. Go to this bar. People hang out there. And like, I learned in that year, I learned so much about Chicago theater. I just gained access in this really fast and exciting way. And at the end of that year, I was like, oh my gosh, Chicago theater is such a wonderful open community but 
you don't need to make good plays in order to be successful. You just oh, have yeah. to keep doing it. Because I was seeing a lot of good plays, but I was also seeing like most of what I was seeing was crap, you know? Just like most of what I make is crap. And as long as you don't have a fear of failure, then success is a lot easier. And I found that uh, taking that mentality, I was like, I'm just going to start my own company because like, what's the worst that could happen? You know, (laughs) (laughs) that is a, that is a brave step (laughs) off the diving board there. You named your company, um, the hypocrites. Where did the name come from? What was the inspiration for that? Because people have a different concept of what a hypocrite is, but it means something else to you. Well, it does. It's Greek for actor, you know, someone who pretends what they are not. So at the root of it, it, the word was created to describe an actor, you know, and then we took that word and made it sort of a negative context about somebody lying about their belief system and acting in a completely different way. But at the root of it all, I think we're all hypocrites. You know, it depends on who we're talking to. We, We sort of have philosophies based on the people that we're talking to. And then a second later, we'll be talking to somebody else and we'll be talking from a completely different point of view, you know? And there are things that are true to our character, but like you can't expect someone to hold the same beliefs when they're 18 as they do when they're, you know, 48. So if you can look at a human being as this sort of a fluctuating entity, uh, then uh, hypocrisy doesn't seem that uh, daunting, you know what I mean? It doesn't seem like that a negative thing. It's, I think it's just part of being a human. So I named my theater company The Hypocrites because I wanted to name it like a rock band. I felt like every theater company in Chicago was mostly named some kind of adjective and then some kind of noun followed by theater company or ensemble or production company. And I was like, well, why do you need all those words? You know, if you look at really great, and especially in the 90s, like great rock band names were just like one word, two words, and people could remember them a lot easier. Yeah. And especially when you have no money for marketing, I was like, if you just have a name that people can remember, then half your job is done. And so that's why I named it The Hypocrite. So it's a people, great brand, yeah. Thanks. Uh, it, the Hypocrite, Steppenwolf is another example of that. I mean, you, there's no mistaking what Steppenwolf is. Yeah. And speaking, it sounds like a rock band <laughs> as, <laughs> as well. Steppenwolf is a rock band, it, yeah. it, They are a rock <laughs> band. Yeah. Your mission statement is, uh, is as follows. We think there is no deeper reason to live than being with other people, laughing, sharing stories, helping friends. And this is just in part through personal pain, exchanging ideas. If you agree, please come to our theater. You will exit invigorated and ready to be engaged with the world around you. Now, we, we talked about your uh, career as an actor <laughs> and then as a writer. Um, you still write a bit. You've been known, however, mostly in, in recent years as a brilliant adapter oh, of, of pieces. What's the most rewarding thing in the theater for you to do? Uh, adapting, directing, uh, writing still? Uh, what do you find most rewarding? Well, thanks for asking. What I find most rewarding is a combination of a lot of different jobs. Like I love, I love the months or years I spend with the script developing it. I love like sitting in front of my computer in the morning, you know, changing words, trying to figure out characters, getting to know people, 
Uh, I love that time, and then I love getting it in the hands of a group of actors as a sort of low-pressure workshop, and then I love going back to the drawing board, and I love doing that for several months and several cycles. And then I love taking that material and getting in front of, uh, with actors in a, in a rehearsal process and developing it further. And then like getting in front of an audience and seeing what the audience reacts to. And then like years later, getting it back in the rehearsal room and developing further with the same group of actors or maybe different, different artists too. I just love, it's hard to say what I necessarily do. You know, I am a director, but I'm also a playwright and I'm also an adapter. But like, I think all of those jobs are one for me. It's what uh, theater history, how theater operated throughout most of theater history until the middle of the 19th century is most people would write a play based on a story that they already knew get it in front of a group of their friends, play with it, and then put it up in front of an audience. You know, That's what theater history was. That's what most of the Greek tragedians did. That's what Aristophanes did. That's what Shakespeare did. That's what a lot of the Elizabethans did. They just sort of played with these stories that they already knew and then put it up in front of an audience. And I like to think of myself as continuing that, uh, that tradition rather than uh, thinking of the, the modern idea of the segmented writer, the segmented director, Director, the segmented playwright. It's all together for me, you know, in one sort of creator, I guess, with, with a bunch of people. Do you uh, uh, subscribe to the ensemble theory of great creative environments uh, in terms of, of your actors and your designers and whatnot? What I do is just get a group of collaborators in the room, and it all is project-driven, you know? We don't necessarily have a, 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 an ensemble a, a attached to our theater company. We have a community, an open-door community, so basically anybody, uh, it, it was to the point where anybody could come and and we would have a potluck once a month and just stand around, eat food, and talk about theater, you know? And that was what we sort of, instead of having an ensemble, we just had these great conversations and gatherings. What I do when we try to produce a show is we create a community within the show. We create a bunch of collaborators that have equal voice, that have uh, equal investment in the project, and really try to uh, create with the end goal of putting the show up in front of an audience. Let, let's talk about one of the great collaborations uh, of, of the Hypocrites' 20-year run. Um, this is a, a piece that's a couple of years old now, but has been revitalized and revived uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, it, it's called All Our Tragic. This is a piece that you developed while you were uh, at, at Harvard, right? Yeah, yes. Uh, I was. Um, I got a fellowship to go to the Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Study at Harvard University. It's a mouthful. It now, is a it, mouthful. It's a, and I'm glad you said it because <laughs> I couldn't read it. It's an amazing. It's an amazing place, and it's for an academic year. So it's September through May, and I did that from 2013, September 2013 to May 2014. And they they gave uh, me a salary and an office, and uh, I just got to do whatever I wanted. And it, it was this amazing, enlightening, life-changing opportunity. I had been working on All Our Tragic for two years up until that point, uh, you know, by myself. And then I partnered with a bunch of universities to develop it further. And then I went out to Radcliffe and sort of put the final touches on it and then brought it back here to the hypocrites to produce it. Uh, just to clarify, All Our Tragic is a 12-hour uh, piece of theater 
uh, which is a compilation. I, I won't say mashup because that's not really true, but it is a compilation of all the extant Greek tragedies that you could possibly find, that you could turn up in your research. And you, as an adapter, took all of those and put them together in a 12-hour show where characters reoccur, they return uh, from previous plays. Where did you conceive of this idea? How did you conceive of this idea? And how long did it take to execute this piece from concept to stage? Uh, thank you for asking about it. It's a it's a show that I'm extremely proud of. Uh, with all our tragic, uh, it started we in 2009. I did a production of Oedipus uh, by Sophocles, and um, I had always loved reading Greek tragedy, and I've always been in love with the the Greek myths ever since I was a child. You know, and I think my first introduction to Greek tragedy was in high school when we read Oedipus, and I thought it was like awesome. And then I remember talking to some other students in class and they were like, did you read that boring thing last night? And I was like, uh, um, well, uh, you know, <laughs> so I love the material, you know, yeah. just naturally drawn to it. And I've never seen a successful, I'm going to say it, I've never seen a successful Greek tragedy put on a modern stage because I feel like the, the chorus is, um, a thing that modern audiences don't understand or modern directors have a real struggle with. You know, uh, modern directors who really try to justify the chorus, you know, put these lovely women in, in ball gowns or dress them in gauze and they play with sand and, like, uh, umbrellas and open suitcases or pour water and, you know what I mean? While they're saying sure. this text sure. that has no relevance to us. And you can dress that text up as much as you want, but that text is, n is you'd be hard-pressed to convey meaning with that text. And so in 2009, when I did Oedipus, I sort of took the, and Sophocles is a great start for this because he sort of uses the chorus mostly to convey information, but they also have uh, start to have an emotional life. And so I sort of took the emotional life and the information out of the chorus and just uh, spread it among three actors. So I did Oedipus with just three actors as like Sophocles wrote it for three actors and then a chorus. And I was like, I can do this with three. And then we created this promenade version where the audience mixed in with Oedipus. And like when he ripped his eyes out, people in the audience got bloody. It was like this amazing. Oh, you've given away the ending. <laughs> Well, to quite, our listeners. Not yet. <laughs> oh, I say not yet. Okay. Uh, it was it was really fun and rewarding, you know, and it ended up being like this 50-minute production because when you get a lot of the material that doesn't re uh, lay information to modern audiences out of there, you're left with this really exciting, concise, like, driving story. And I was like, 50 minutes, three actors, and audiences seem to respond well to it. I was like, I want to do more of it. And I sort of looked at doing a, Theban cycle, a version of the Theban cycle with Oedipus Colonus and uh, Antigone. And I was like, well, you know what? A lot of people do a Theban cycle with those three plays. Sophocles only has seven plays that survive, you know, in the hundred or something that he wrote, or uh, he only has seven that survive. And so the three Theban plays are related to Oedipus, but then there's four other plays that are loosely, all loosely connected. And I saw a narrative in the four other plays. So I was like, I'm going to get all seven plays and do like a, a, a sort of cycle play with these two narratives, right? And I was explaining that I was going to do seven Greek tragedies in one night, and people thought I was insane. They were like, <laughs> I'd rather catch polio than go see, you know, seven <laughs> Greek tragedies in one evening. 
so I worked on the script a lot. I got a few workshops out of it. I went out to Oregon Shakespeare Festival and worked on it for a week. And everybody was like, this is amazing, but nobody will ever produce it. And I was like, all right, because nobody wants to see it. So I put it in a drawer. This is such a long story. I'm sorry. And then someone, great, this great New York director, this young New York director, had got a copy of it. And he was like, I want to produce this in my loft in Hell's Kitchen. And I was like, sure, whatever, for no money. I was like, go ahead, you know, if you want to do it. If you're crazy enough, no one wants to see it. And it was a huge hit out there for him. And I went out to see it, and I was like, we've got to do this in Chicago. So I did it. I produced it with the hypocrites, uh, Sophocles, uh, These Seven Sicknesses. That was so rewarding and so successful. It was a five-hour play, and we served meals during it. And uh, I wanted to do more. And I started working on Aeschylus, the seven plays of Aeschylus, and I couldn't quite find the narrative of Aeschylus the way I did with Sophocles. And so I was like, I started working, I did a couple plays of, two plays of his, and I started working on Seven Against Thebes, which involves Oedipus and the story of uh, Thebes and Antigone. And I was like, if only I could put Seven Against Thebes into my Sophocles plays, then it would be like, it would make so much more sense. And then I was like, wait a second, how many Greek plays are there? And I looked it up, and there were only 32 that survive. Out of 30, the, 32. 32. Out of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that were written, there's only 32 Greek tragedies that have made it through history, you know, which is a shame, but it's also like I looked at all 32, and I had actually read all, I had read all of them but for two. There were two I hadn't read, which... Uh, were the worst by far. <laughs> and uh, I started charting together how it might work in this whole event. And I sort of got the idea that, like, you know, these plays were written to be performed in dialogue with each other. They were written to be performed in a one day or a couple day long festivals. People showed up in the morning and saw theater all day long and they got drunk and ate food and sang songs and talked. And these plays were uh, meant to encourage dialogue within that festival, you know, being in dialogue and opposition with each other because it was the dawn of democracy. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to create a modern festival of Dionysus with the 32 surviving Greek plays. Wow. And you did. Uh, I I tried. Well, I, by all by all accounts, uh, as I said, you did tremendously well. Um, that's that's quite the saga. The hypocrites shows contain a great deal, in my estimation, a great deal of circus imagery and circus technique. At times, there's there's a sense of uh, clown um, performance here and there. You use a lot of music. I'm referring a little bit as well to your, your Gilbert and Sullivan shows that you've adapted. Uh, one we saw, which was it was basically a three-ring circus. I actually sat in one of the rings. I was brave enough to sit among the balloons and was asked to move a couple of times by the actors, which was quite fun. Is circus part of of what you like to bring to your work uh, or do you, is it not a conscious effort on your part no circus is not something i explore and i've never done whiteface i'm like firmly as an actor i'm or excuse me as a director i'm totally against the use of masks and whiteface like what i i really like doing is hanging out in a room with people and i know that sounds sort of like very reductive but i believe theater is just a bunch of people coming together and hanging out. That includes actors and audience. So I, I don't want, the less barriers I have between the actor and the audience, the, the more 
rewarding the experiences mm -hmm. for me. So what I try to do with every production is dismantle the barriers as much as I possibly can, yet still tell a cohesive story in a safe, supportive environment. You know, and some productions can lend itself a little bit more to exploration of physically in intermingling the audience and the actors. Uh, and some productions don't, don't actually work for many reasons, for safety or audience comfort or something. But the show you saw was like a circus inspired. That was just a design choice for that one. And as far as sort of the relationship that some people say is like clowning that my performers that I work with have with the audience, I, I literally, the only concept I have is that actors should make sure that the audience knows that the words are intended for them. That's it. Like, make sure that you invite the audience into the production and make sure that they know that the words you are speaking are for them. It's not for you. It's not for your scene partner. It's for everybody in the room. So just remind the audience that they... Uh, that these words are, are for them, you know? And so that's where the direct address comes from. That's where just looking at the audience every now and then comes from. It's not so much about, uh, I've never studied clowning. I don't, there are masters of clowning and I have no understanding I of, of yeah. the technique that that involves. Like, I just know when I want someone to talk to me, I know when I'm starting to get bored, so I ask them to, like, share some things with me, and that's all, that's, that's my sort of process, if that makes sense. It makes absolutely perfect sense. I, I do feel a, some circus elements in, in your work, whether it's intended or mm. not. We're, we're big circus fans here on Booth One. We oh, talk cool. about the circus a lot. <laughs> uh, we especially talk about the elephants, who are now gone, and I would be remiss if I did not uh, mention this on our show, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, uh, run by the Feld Corporation, last week uh, announced that after 146 years of performance, it was folding its big tent forever. They'll hold their final performances in May. I was lucky enough to go back in uh, November uh, to see the Barnum and Bailey Circus here at the United Center again for the second time in a, in two years, and it was tremendous. It, it, you know, talk about connecting. Mm. Uh, we we had the greatest time, and I'm going to miss the circus. Uh, Feld has cited uh, declining ticket sales, which um, dropped even more dramatically after the elephants were phased out from the shows last year. So. Uh, I, I enjoy the spectacle of it. I enjoy I enjoy just watching the kids watching the mm. circus and uh, the acrobats. We've had uh, Sylvia Hernandez de Stasi on the oh, show. She's great. Uh, who uh, runs the uh, Actors Gymnasium here in Evanston? She was on our show. Oh. Maybe a year and a half ago, and she was wonderful. She had some great, great stories about the circus. Anyway, I will miss the circus, but it's a it's a hundred and forty six year tradition that millions and millions of people have have loved uh, over the years, and I, I for one, will miss the spectacle of it. Let's talk about talk about maybe an elephant in the room a little bit. <laughs> Hypocrites recently announced, much to the shock of a lot of people in Chicago, in the theater community, that you're ceasing operations after your next show called Wit, uh, which would be the third show of the current season. You were on a subscription series type model. What series of events or circumstances uh, kind of led to this development after 20 years of producing? And, and, I, and I realize this is a very complex 
and complicated issue. But if you could just give us a couple of uh, things that brought about this decision. Yeah, thank you for talking about it. I mean, it's a very interesting time for uh, me as an artistic director, for sure. You know, if you talk to any, including the circus, if you talk to any people that were selling tickets to people this fall, everybody took a huge drop. And it's there's a lot of theories about why this happened. But everybody across the board, no matter how big the institution or how small, everybody took a big drop. We were about a million-dollar budget, and that is a really tentative spot for an arts organization. Because if you're larger, you tend to have a buffer, so you can like t- absorb some of those ticket sales losses. If you're smaller, you're much more nimble and like ticket. You're not that relying on ticket sales. So what had happened is we had just done two shows in a row. We did uh, "You on the Moors Now" and uh, a version of Cinderella, and people just didn't come to it very well. You know, it wasn't very well attended. Um, I was very proud of the shows. They weren't. Neither was perfect by any measure, but. People just didn't come to them, right? And at the same point, we were doing a very aggressive capital fundraising campaign, you know, and we have a really great executive director, Kelly Strickland, and uh, we went through best practices about how to raise money, and she had been very successful raising huge amounts of money at other institutions. And we just found by the time we sort of got this fundraising campaign going that uh, we would go out to lunches with people hoping to bring back large checks and we would bring back decent checks, but they weren't enough to sort of make up for not only the shortfalls in ticket prices, but we just were not bringing in the donations either. Mm. So that combination in, and like this year we increased our budget, our production budgets, you know, to pay all of our artists a competitive, respectable wage. We started paying people like decent, not even good, you know what I mean? Not even livable, just respectable, trying to get the the uh, approach to a livable wage. And so as our production costs were increasing tremendously, our donations and ticket sales were falling tremendously. And it just like the gap just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then our smart board, along with Kelly, just looked at the books at the beginning of September and said, like, we are not in a sustainable cycle right now. And we have to cease operations and like regroup and figure out what we can do. Do you subscribe to the idea still of a subscription series model? Is that something that a a company of your size can find mm, detrimental at times? There's a lot of discussion about, is that the right way to go? And and for years, that's been the way to go. You, you, You plan a season, you announce it. You sell subscriptions to that season, and you get early money. Yeah. Uh, and people can buy three, four, five, flex pass, you know, black card. There's a million, million different ways that um, one can sell your subscriptions now. Is it something that moving forward you, you might kind of ease away from a little bit? Yeah, I think we're in a great position to sort of reevaluate and reinvent uh, the ways that we're making theater. And I think the subscription model is one of the things that we're calling into question. Uh, the, there are a couple problems I see with the subscription model, at least for us, is uh, one, you sort of plan like a certain number of shows. Let's say you plan five shows. There's always one show that everybody is passionate about. Like, there's one show that you're like, yeah. And then there's, like, two shows that you're like, yeah, we could get behind that. And then there's always material that you're like, my gosh, we've got to fill this season. How are we going to fill the season? So what you have is this philosophy where you have 
slots and then you're finding material to fill the slots. And I'm trying to try to create a company that we, when we're passionate about something, we'll make the space for it. Rather than having space to fill it, we will make the space when we have something passionate to say. Another problem with season subscriptions that I see is that you're basically uh, selling a product before it's even made, which fundamentally is a little confusing for me when you get down to the. And I, I have a very simple, rudimentary understanding of economics, but it just seems strange that you're like selling a product before you even have that product, you know? And then it also comes down to the fact that like you're selling a product to to your consumers for a completely discounted rate. You know, what we actually pay to make a play, there's no way that you don't expect to make your money at ticket sales. You know, you expect to make a 75% return or, a, uh, you know, a 60% return or even a 50% return sometimes if you're lucky. So you're basically spending all this money to make product that you're selling at a 50% uh, discount to people. And it's like, what kind of economic model is that? That just seems like a really bad business. I'm going to try to just make it in a little bit different way and just be a little bit smarter about how we run a business. I, for one, look forward to the reorganization of, uh, of the hypocrites and, and, and see what you're going to do next. Thanks, um, what's been your favorite or most rewarding experience as an audience member? in your well recent lifetime this is this is not a test to and and i won't hold you to this answer as being the ultimate one but what comes to mind when i ask you that question it's an amazing question being in the audience the first time for too much light makes a baby go blind as i said earlier was it was completely revolutionary for me and you know in the in the mid 90s there was just a couple companies that like really transformed the way I looked at theater you know factory theater back in that day uh, defiant theater I don't know if you remember them they oh, were absolutely just, yeah these amazing sort of really aggressively uh, 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 aggressive companies that I really really enjoyed let me kind of turn that question a little bit in a different direction. Uh, what's the memory of your first theatrical experience? You know, some people say, oh, oh, I was four and my parents took me to see The Sound of Music mm-hmm. or I was in um, grammar school and I got cast in a play and from then on I was bitten. Do you have an early memory of, your, uh, of a theater experience that sort of not necessarily changed your life but put you on this path to a career in the theater? That, that's a good question. Very young, we did not go to theater. We were not theater goers. We, uh, you know, it was very much a, a, a working class uh, family. And uh, I'm not sure I knew what a play was for the longest time. Uh, my, um, my uncle took me and my cousins to see a production of Peter Pan when I was fairly young. And I don't remember any of it. I just remember being completely bored. We were really, it was super nice of him to take me. And I'm sure I was a monster because it was just so boring to me. So uh, I don't really remember theater when I was really young. You know, um, what I do remember is in high school, uh, I was just super hyperactive and I didn't play sports. And a lot of people made fun of me. And it was just like I didn't fit in anywhere. And it was, uh, I'm not saying that because woe was me. I just didn't fit in anywhere, and I needed an outlet for 
for all my energy. And a good friend of mine had done theater in the summer, summer stock theater. And he came back and he was like, I just did theater. And I was like, what is theater? You know? And like, we sort of decided that it was so exciting for him that we started this drama club at our high school, just without ever doing theater I just decided to put all my energy into this drama club, and we uh, we worked with this wonderful woman who recently passed away, and she started directing musicals for our high school. And I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't like I was just, but I was. She'd put me in these musicals, and what we did was a lot of of the the sort of. Uh, freaks of the school, for lack of a better term, the 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 no group people sort of came and banded together for theater, and I was like, this is a really really exciting, powerful thing. You know, I was a sophomore in high school or junior in high school, I forget, and it was just amazing because I knew that theater could bring people together and just give them a space to to express themselves and to share laughs and to work towards a common goal. And it was very exciting, and I knew that theater was what I wanted to do then. That's a fantastic answer. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> We've asked this of many of our guests, and I'm always fascinated by the answer. If you were not doing theater, and you had the opportunity to do anything else in your life, what might you want to do, or what had you wanted to do before you committed your all of your passion and energy to what you do now. Is there any other endeavor or uh, kind of form of, of uh, human interest that you would have liked to pursue? Uh, no, when I was really young, and I dream about it now still, I, I wanted to be a farmer. Uh, I'm not sure why, but I had these overalls and I just loved my overalls. So I think <laughs> I always wanted to be a farmer. And, and like, I dream about that some now, not like I own a, a large farm, you know, but like I own a like small little f grow vegetables and like, you know, sell them places, have people come over and we'll eat vegetables. Like, it's like that, that idea of just like living in a, in a remote place that isn't the city and sort of ha with my wife and a bunch of cats and just growing vegetables. It's like this dream of mine. That's kind of like uh, George and Emily in our town. Oh, yeah. Who, who get married and uh, get a farm. Mm. I, I, it's, speaking of our town, uh, we, we have to mention that uh, last night you held a benefit performance of a, a staged reading of Our Town. Now, a number of years ago, uh, the Hypocrites produced a, a production, wonderful, wonderful production of Our Town, directed by David Cromer. And uh, I, I saw it in the basement of the oh. Chopin Theater, wow. um, which was just tremendously intimate and astounding that this piece, which is pretty well known in America, still had secrets to reveal to me. And I, I, I walked away from that evening just on cloud nine about it. Well, as a benefit performance uh, for the hypocrites, uh, as a fundraiser, I guess, you mounted a stage reading of it last night uh, on the stage of the aforementioned Steppenwolf Theater. In fact, on the stage of the Christians, which we covered last week and, uh, well, two weeks ago in our, in our last episode, I thought the show worked really well on the stage <laughs> of the Christians with that big cross-up stage yeah. because religion and faith and belief play such major themes in, in our town. And 
walking into the theater, I thought, oh, how's this going to play? I mean, are they going to take that cross down or is it just going to be there? And you know what? It worked for me from beginning to end, especially paid off in the third act. Uh, Congratulations on a very, very successful event. We were very happy to be contributors to that. Thank um, you very much. To that uh, uh, goal and uh, hope uh, all the best for uh, the future on that. Is there a place where people can go to donate to the cause uh, and, and help your company revitalize and reorganize itself? Absolutely. If anybody's interested, they can visit www.the-hypocrites.com or just type Hypocrites Theater Company into a search engine and our website will, I'm sure, pop up. And there is a donation page there. We'll definitely love any and all donations, you know, towards the future. We'll put it towards good use, I promise. Well, hopefully our listeners will will take advantage of that and uh, you uh, may see some influx from this, from this uh, episode broadcast. That great. Thank you. You were talking earlier about when you were young and and your your drama teacher was putting you into to musicals. Are you a musical fan? Uh, is that a is that a format of or a genre of the theater that you're a fan of? Like the big musical, the I big Broadway it. musical. I love it. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, we went to uh, we went to something the other day, and it was not a musical. It was a film. It was oh. a documentary film with the very, very odd title of Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened. Wow. This is a film made by Lonnie Price, the director and former actor uh, and Broadway star, about the creation of, the making of, and the untimely demise of Merrily We Roll Along, the Stephen Sondheim How Prince musical from the early 1980s. Um, That musical had great promise written all over it because uh, Prince and Sondheim were coming off of Company, Follies, a little night music, and they were the kings of Broadway. Almost seemingly they couldn't do anything wrong, and they came up with this project based on a uh, a Kaufman and Hart play from the 30s called Merrily We Roll Along, which examines the life of three friends, and the conceit is it examines them backwards. Uh, You're familiar with this show, Mm -hmm. right, Sean? Yeah. So... They decided to move forward with this Broadway production, and they cast some wonderful people. Jason Alexander was in the show. Oh, wow. Jim Walton was in the show, and Lonnie Price uh, was one of the leads in the show. Um, what they did, however, was they decided to cast all young people. Kids who were actually just in high school were in this Broadway show, and uh, one of the great things about this film is that it, it it has footage of auditions of these kids in a room, and there were hundreds of them that all turned out. I mean, they put the ad in the paper, and, and hundreds of kids turned out, because who doesn't want to sing and dance and act on Broadway in a Sondheim show when you're 15 years old? It's, it's like a dream, and they all had listened to the albums. They were all huge fans, and this was the opportunity of a lifetime. As the title says, the best worst thing that ever could have happened, it was the greatest opportunity and the best thing that could have happened to these kids when they all got cast in the show. However, it turned out to be very, very bittersweet. Uh, In not too long a time, the show ran only 16 performances, and it's a troubled show, and Mm. it's been revived many, 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 many times around the world. 
uh, always people trying to figure out how to make it better. It's kind of like what you said earlier about the Greek chorus, that modern theater goers and modern directors don't really know quite what to make of the, <laughs> the Greek chorus. Well, modern theater directors and designers and producers have been trying to figure out for years how to make Merrily We Roll Along a viable piece of theater. One of the ways they've done it is they've gotten away from the model of casting kids, Mm. the age of those kids at the beginning of the show, or or sort of of at the end of the Mm. show, I guess, the the beginning of the plot line, but the, the end of the show, and actually casting adults. That works better, and that works better for me. How Prince also made the unfortunate decision of putting every actor in a T-shirt that had their character name Uh. listed on it. One of them said best friend. One of them said (laughs) ex-wife. One of them said divorce lawyer. And someone should have told them that was probably (laughs) not a good idea. But it's a wonderful film. And it's beautifully made, and there's some great footage that Lonnie Price came up with. In fact, he even has a uh, recording at a party that he threw for the cast. Lonnie Price threw a party for the cast. It was a dessert party. I mean, these kids were young, and they were not drinking at the Mm -hmm. time, drinking and smoking. It was not that kind of party. Uh, But they invited Hal Prince and his wife, and he said, and Hal said, well, I'll bring Stephen along. So Sondheim comes along, sort of around Lonnie Price's birthday. Sondheim asks him if he has a piano in the house, in in his apartment. He said, yeah, yeah, of course I have a piano. He said, well, come here, I have a surprise for you. And he said, well, this is for your birthday, and uh, I've written this song for you. And I've written this song into the show, and you're going to sing it. And he plays, we started out like a song, we started simple with no surprise, and it's Sondheim singing as he's playing wow. in this living room. Uh, it's just an audio recording, but this is ex- an example of what's in part of this movie. Uh, it was at the Gene Siskel uh, Film Center here in Chicago, which is kind of an art house uh, where they only show things a couple of times. So uh, if you didn't see it this past weekend, you've missed it. However, they said it was so popular, they're going to bring it back in April. So I encourage all our listeners to have a look at the um, Gene Siskel Film Center uh, schedule online and watch for the best worst thing that ever could have happened uh, to show up, and you will not be disappointed. Anybody who likes a good musical theater story, even if it's bittersweet, will absolutely love this film. What advice would you have, Sean, for someone of your age 20 years ago Mm. Um, starting out to craft a theater company in Chicago or or elsewhere, I guess. But let, let's talk about Chicago. What kind of lessons have you learned, good and bad? You know, if we had a, a young twenty four year old, twenty five year old who had just come out of Massachusetts and uh, thought Chicago would be a good place to put down some roots, what, what kind of advice might you have? Two or three things that you might tell them off the bat. Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. I would tell them first uh, to not do it. (laughs) Because if they disagreed with me and went for it, it would mean that their passions were really, really behind it. But I would strongly advise them to not start another theater company. Or at least consider it, uh, consider doing something else. Yeah, or, you know, trying to ingratiate themselves to one of the great theater companies already here in Chicago. Right, right. Um, But then they say, no, no, it's my 
my passion. I have to do it. I have to do it. Then I would say be really smart business person. Just know that you're running a business. First and foremost, you are running a business. And I know it is a business that makes art, but first and foremost, you have to know how to run a business. And then I would also say think strongly about the people that you bring on board and just be very, very smart about your collaborators. Make sure that they're a diverse group of people, that they have uh, different opinions than yours, all strongly focused on the same goal, but just make sure they're just not a lot of people like that person. Do you know what I mean? That like mm. diversity really enriches uh, uh, people's artistic uh, voices and product, and mm -hmm. we sort of need that. We need to stop having homogenous theater companies, I think. So, uh, talk to me a little bit about your leadership style and and how that's evolved for you. My job as a leader, I think, is to just make sure that other people succeed. You know, especially as a director and artistic director, we don't really do anything. You know, we just sort of sit around and say, <laughs> like, yes, good job, or like, don't do it that way. So everybody else is doing the work. So you should really, as, an, as a leader, really try to get out of the way and let people do the best job that they can. That doesn't mean that people shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't give advice to people. You shouldn't sort of form their job or redirect them or, like help them halfway through but like you really if you really invested in the success of other people then I think that that you'll end up being a really good leader so what's next for Sean Graney obviously you're uh, retrenching and you're figuring out a, a new model and a new approach to the hypocrites uh, but personally, what's next for you? What's next for me is I am writing a follow-up to All Our Tragic, which is called the Aristophanes-a-thon, which is the 11 plays of Aristophanes in a five-hour event. And it's it's like loosely related to All Our Tragic. It's sort of like, I explain it like the Marvel Universe, you know, how all those shows sort of come out and the same characters sort of pop up. They keep the recurring, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. So there are some characters for All Our Tragic, but it tells a completely different story, and it's a little more, it's a little more relaxed. It's a little more comic. It's a little more musical. I've been working on that for about a year now, and it's the script is in pretty good shape. And I'm going off to uh, Boston to work with the students of the uh, American Repertory Theater's graduate program there for three weeks, and we'll have a one-night showing reading of it out there. And then I go to University of North Carolina in Charlotte to do a week-long workshop of that. Awesome. It's well, I can't, I can't wait. Oh, cool. I, 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 you know, I'm dying to ask you, well, when will we be able to see it? But I know that that's um, indeterminate. I yeah. mean, uh, the way you described earlier in our episode here about the way you like to work and the way you like to develop, and you're very much an artist of the process, mm. not necessarily always let's get to the end. Yeah. Um, and then they got to the end. <laughs> uh, you, you, you like the process yeah. and that, that speaks volumes, uh, about, about your work. Thanks Gary. Um, I am a huge fan, uh, of yours, a huge fan of the hypocrites and, uh, you're a fantastic guest. Thank um, you. we generally end our podcasts with a segment called the kiss of death. Uh -oh. Now that has nothing to do really with you. Um, <laughs> this is uh, usually this is always a tribute to someone who has passed recently. Okay. Uh, they could be very famous. They could not be famous. They could just be ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Today we're going to talk about someone who is 
or was quite famous. Uh, Roberta Peters, a soprano with a very dramatic entrance to her career, she passed away uh, recently. Uh, we've talked about another opera singer uh, on episode 42, Patrice Munsell, and these two were very much contemporaries. They came to fame at a time when television was beginning to really launch uh, in a common way in people's households. So they grew up with television. They appeared on the Ed Sullivan show and Mike Douglas show. They were, they, they really came into people's uh, uh, living rooms. So you didn't actually have to go to the Met to, to meet them and see them. And they were not untouchable. They seemed very much like, well, they, they were like the stars of the day. They were the American idols of the day. Uh, but Roberta Peters, uh, the opera soprano, who at 20 was catapulted to stardom by a phone call, a subway ride, and a Metropolitan Opera debut, all in the space of five hours. She passed away at 86 this week. I'm going to read a little bit of this because uh, it's, it's a rare piece by one of our favorite obituary writers uh, at the New York Times, Marguerite Fox. I interviewed her um, some months ago. Her writing is so precise and so beautifully crafted uh, about the tribute of a life. Uh, Miss Peters, who would sing with the Met 515 times over 35 vigorous years, was internationally renowned for her high silvery voice. In private, get this, Sean, she could hit a high A two and a half octaves above middle C. Wow. Now, I'm not a complete musician, but that seems like it's pretty extraordinary. That's crazy. In private. Uh, she's also known for her clarion diction, her attractive stage presence, and by virtue of the fact that she and television came to prominence at a about the same time, her wide popular appeal. At mid-century, when it was more customary to encounter opera stars on television than it is today, she was seen on a string of shows, as I mentioned, like uh, the voice of Firestone, Mike Douglas, and in particular, the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, one thing that allowed Miss Peters to sing so long was a prudent awareness of what her voice could and could not do. Possessed of a light, fleet instrument, she confined herself to a coloratura and soubrette-type roles, steering clear of heavier fare. She's uh, quoted as, as saying that she would love to have sung Tosca, but she will never do it. I won't do it, at least not in this lifetime. They would kill me vocally, those kinds of roles. <laughs> so she took on little bit lighter fare so she could have a more enduring career. Another thing that kept Miss Peters singing was her impeccable technique from the age of 13. She had trained for an operatic career as an athlete trains for the Olympics. For many years, her weekly regimen included not only voice and foreign language lessons, but also ballet, acting, and fencing, as well as a strength and conditioning program, this I found fascinating, under the direct supervision of Joseph Pilates. Yeah, the originator of the uh, Pilates exercise method. Uh, she was born Roberta Peterman, and she shortened her name to Peters uh, at her teacher's suggestion. Uh, she was an only child, born in May of 1930, and grew up uh, near Jerome Avenue and 170th Street in the Bronx. Her father, a shoe salesman. Her mother, a milliner. 
um, neither uh, really musically inclined, though they uh, promoted her uh, vocal career. Mr. Pilates did his part in training Peter's vocal technique by standing regularly on Roberta's abdomen. He weighed 174 pounds. She weighed 119 pounds to help her develop the musculature essential for breath control. All this proved so effective that at 16, she was offered a $1,000 a week role in a musical called Street Scene. Mm. Street Scene uh, with music by Kurt Vile and lyrics by Langston Hughes uh, that would open on Broadway in 1947. However, uh, Roberta, being supported by her parents, she turned the role down. Um, she had her sights set on opera, and she would not be deterred in her convictions. In late 1949, Saul Herrick, the uh, high-wanted impresario, arranged an audition with the Mets' new general manager, Rudolf Bing, very famous man. In 1950, in January, the 19-year-old Miss Peters stood on the stage of the old Met Opera House on Broadway and 39th Street in Manhattan. There in the darkened hall, she sang the Queen of the Night's aria from the Magic Flute, which is among the canonical texts of the coloratura repertoire. And somewhere out there in the darkness sat Mr. Bing. Uh, when it was over, he asked if I would sing it again, she said. Then he asked me to do it again. Well, I sang it about four times, not knowing that he had silently brought in a series of Met conductors to hear her sing. Uh, signed to a Met contract, Miss Peters was scheduled to make her debut with the company as the Queen of the Night in January of 1951. Here's the, uh, the burst of stardom uh, part of her career. On November 17th, the soprano who was scheduled to sing Zerlina in uh, the Met Opera's Don Giovanni production that night. She fell ill. And at 3 p.m., Mr. Bing telephoned Miss Peters and told her to report to the opera in time for an 8 o'clock curtain. Well, Miss Peters, who had planned to watch the performance with her mother uh, from the standing room section that night, informed her parents that they now had box seats. So the family rushed to the street. They hailed a taxi. When the cab became stuck in traffic, they jumped out and took the subway. Miss Peters' only preparation for the role, and this sounds a lot like people who were doing Our Town last night, because you didn't really have a lot of rehearsal. No. It took the form of hurried consultations with the stage director and the conductor. She was hustled into costume. The other singers moved her around the stage so that uh -huh. she could hit her marks and uh, put her wherever she needed to be for the lighting. The New York World Telegram's review the next day the voice came through the big house as clear as a bell, the notes equally bright and focused, and the phrasing that of a true musician. From then on, Miss Peters was in great demand around the world. Apparently, Sean, she was one of opera's least diva-like divas. She was exceptionally game. For instance, she donned a chicken suit in 1975 to appear on Captain Kangaroo. Do you remember the Captain <laughs> I Kangaroo do, yeah. show? I don't remember her in a chicken no. suit, but she was very game for these kinds of things. She appeared on several memorable TV commercials like Chock Full of Nuts, where she sang the uh, company's signature song in mellifluous Italian in another for American Express. And I don't know if you remember this ad campaign where they'd have big stars saying, I carry the American Express card, and they'd show them doing things. Oh, yeah. I think Donald Trump actually did one of those commercials, part of its Do You Know Me series. Uh, she hailed a cab by singing out, Taxi! In a descending major third from G to E flat, apparently, which I wow. don't even know uh, if I was in even the right key there. She had dramatic roles on TV, including shows in uh, like Medical Center, in which she played a dying singer. 
Mm. For all the acclaim that cloaked Miss Peters and for all the laurels heaped upon her, including, well, she was a National uh, Medal of Arts uh, recipient in 1998, perhaps nothing could match the electricity of that November night when a 20-year-old from the Bronx stepped onto the Met stage in Unknown and came back as Roberta Peters. An ovation and flowers followed along with it. Afterwards, Miss Peters and her family took a taxi all the way home. Huh. Roberta Peters has left us. She was 86 years old. Anything else you'd like to add, Sean, to our amazing episode here? Oh, no. Thank you. That, thank you for sharing that obituary with me. She sounds amazing. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me here. Oh, it is my pleasure. Like us on Facebook, everyone. Follow us on Twitter. Email us at alist at booth-one.com. We'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and comments, as always. And once again, where can people go in order to uh, donate, give, volunteer, uh, support the hypocrites? They can visit the-hypocrites.com or just type our name in a search engine. I'm sure our, <laughs> it, our website will pop up. It'll come up. Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks again for your time on Booth One. Uh, I hope you enjoyed yourself, uh, uh, Sean. Uh, for Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski saying keep listening and so long until next time. <laughs>